It's been seven years since we started the Law Matters radio show with the intent to open the lines of communication between you and all law enforcement agencies. Over the course of the last few years, we have become painfully aware of the negative headlines national media has projected across the country, specifically designed to diminish the rule of law and those whose jobs it is to enforce it. Law Matters show wants you to hear from the source rather than a misleading soundbite so you can decide for yourself. It's time we really listen to and support those who spend their lives protecting us. We want you to join us by leading the way in thanking them for their service and keeping this conversation going. Please help support the Law Matters 501c3 mission at lawmatters1030.org. Now, let's start the show. Good morning, everybody, and thanks for tuning in. Our guests today are Karen Durie. 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 She's a federal prosecutor, and we have U.S. Attorney Gary Rostano. Did I do it right? Rostano. Thanks, Rostano. Okay. I'm screwing up everybody's name. Start the show off with a bang. Okay. Before we get into the, today's topic, can we talk a little bit about immigration and what's going on? I'd like to do that, Sherry. I appreciate that you had us uh, had me over a few months ago, and I wanted to give you an update. Great. And here's, here's what's happening. So Title 42 has ended, which was the health statute that was being used to expel rather than remove certain aliens. It made processing quicker on the border, and everyone wondered what's going to happen when that ends. It turns out it's been remarkably stable on the border, and I want to talk about why. First, it's our great Border Patrol leadership uh, in Tucson, particularly Chief Maudlin, the sector chief, has just exuded calm. And that helps to hear when people hear that he was confident that things were going to go fine. The Border Patrol also moved in a lot of different personnel, some agents to be sure, but civilians, some doctors, some volunteers, some processors to help with any influx that was going to come. And they also use technology. The CBP-1 app is enabling people to apply for asylum from outside the United States and to secure appointments up to 1,200 a day around the country. And that's helpful in letting people who want to play by the rules do so. So that's been one helpful thing um, that we've seen, and that's what we've seen on the border. If I can, I'd also like to give one update on a, on a border initiative over the last couple of months. Okay. And that's to do not with aliens coming across, but with fentanyl coming north and with guns going south. And the Border Patrol, in combination with Homeland Security Investigations, had a great operation. It was Blue Lotus from the Homeland Security Investigation side and Four Horsemen from the Border Patrol side, where they really focused on intel-driven interdictions, and they got over a ton of fentanyl off of Arizona's streets during that time period did some important prosecutions, and also managed to find some firearms that otherwise would have headed south into Mexico that they also were able to interdict. We were very pleased to be able to support those operations, and it's important to realize that Department of Homeland Security does more than just interdicting aliens and other economic migrants coming across. Absolutely. I'm curious, how did you come up with these names, Blue Lotus and Four Horsemen? Sherry, nobody ever asked prosecutors what the case <laughs> name should be, uh, but that's the way they do it. Well, I'm, I'm, sounds like they're making progress, which is which is great. And I've seen it on the news a few times where they've just, these huge busts and all this fentanyl, just think of how many lives they've saved. That's right. We certainly appreciate all their efforts. That's amazing. Okay, today we want to talk about... 
crimes against sex crimes against children. And Karen, I know this is part of your your thing. Tell me what is Project Safe Childhood about? So Project Safe Childhood is a Department of Justice initiative uh, started in 2006, and it was just an effort to uh, shine a light on um, mostly online facilitated child exploitation, but really child exploitation generally. And it was just a push to um, get federal, uh, local, state, and tribal partners all uh, to cooperate uh, to both investigate prosecute and also do some um, public education about the crimes and the risks that are facing our children. So so is it a program that uh, they teach in schools or is this an outside? How does this work? Um, PSC or Project Safe Childhood is really the DOJ's kind of prioritization of this work that we do. So the the way that it plays out in, in uh, practice is that we work with our many federal, local, state partners and tribal partners to uh, coordinate the prosecution investigation of these cases. And that's been very successful. And of course, it changes as technology changes. Um, but we have a lot of great partners that help us pursue those cases and investigations. How is uh, trying a case, this type of a case, different than other cases? What What are the issues that you run into? Well, I think uh, before we look at the actual trial of the cases, I think, you know, one thing that really stands out about child exploitation cases, um, what makes them very different than the others um, is that it's the least reported crime there is. It's also one of the most difficult and uncomfortable things for people to talk about. And I don't just mean from the standpoint of victims reporting, uh, which is a substantial uh, problem. If we don't have reports, we we can't do much with them, right? And right. Uh, but it's also uh, something that maybe gets a little bit uh, less attention sometimes because it is hard for people to face. When we sometimes have a tendency to want to look away and just not see things that are so difficult. But you know that what that does, what the fact about child exploitation uh, being underreported, being so shrouded in secrecy and shame and very complicated emotions for victims. What that does is it means that it doesn't come to light enough. Understandable because there are so many complicated aspects of this from a victim standpoint. Um, most victims don't ever report childhood sexual abuse until they're adults, if it's reported at all. So this gives us a very small amount of uh, cases that we get to investigate and prosecute. And when they come to us, we do so vigorously. And it's extremely rewarding because the fact that these things are not reported means um, it gives the offenders an opportunity for additional victims over time. It, if they're not stopped... Um, it's a need-based behavior. It continues. So um, when we do get um, a child sex abuse case, for example, uh, or child sex abuse material case, um, and we're able to identify an offender against children, uh, that can be very rewarding and effective um, in stopping potential future victims. Well, it would seem like this is a, a crime that's happening behind closed doors. How do you get the evidence? What what do you look for or do you? We certainly do. Um, we have, you know, really robust um, investigators in, in uh, many different, you know, HSI, FBI, 
Um, Secret Service even uh, does some of these cases. But um, And same thing with, you know, ICACs, uh, Internet Crimes Against Children Task Forces all over the countries with local partners as well. And um, there, you know, the, there's a couple good things about the Internet. One of them is it leaves a trace. So it allows us to investigate Um the old days of, say, child pornography or CSAM, as we call it now, child sex abuse material, um, it was a little harder to track down because it was offline. So now that it's online, it makes it easier to uh, to investigate. That's good news. That's the good news and the Some. bad news because it's easier to get to. That's well. true. <laughs> but you mentioned that this happens behind closed door and doors, and that's true. And so the secrecy that shrouds child exploitation also causes less reporting, uh, but it it does make it harder sometimes. What we want to look for, obviously, is corroboration. So uh, difficult, though, when you have younger victims, right? They are not necessarily going to be the kind of witness that uh, he said, she said type of case, for example, is going to be the best, uh, maybe lead to the right outcome. So the good news again about child sex abuse material, and I'm talking about the photos and the images that we see, videos online, is that that enables us to identify child abusers or child exploit- or ex- exploitation offenders without having a child report, and even better, without having to have that child take the stand. One other thing that, um, that happens on on some of the cases that we work is that agents might be looking at a computer with a search warrant to review the computer for something else, for a white-collar crime or a corruption crime or a drug crime. Now, agents aren't allowed to search that computer for everything, but if they, um, in the review, realize, oh, those are images, those appear to be unlawful images, we can get another search warrant, and then we can vindicate additional rights beyond the investigation that we started out doing. So somebody who's committing a white-collar crime is stupid enough to (laughs) be sexually exploiting children on their computer looking at all this stuff that (laughs) blows my mind, blows my mind. So tell me about this case that you're referring to. Well, really, this is just this has happened in any number of cases oh, so that I've is, worked over the years. That's where really sad. We've had uh, we've had an investigation and we've had additional information, and sometimes it's oh, we were looking at the person for a less serious white collar crime. Now we understand the nature of the conduct, and we can shift the investigation. Other times, we just are able to protect additional victims through the course of the investigation. So I don't have one, but I can think of. Dozens of times. It's not nearly every case, but it's not a rare occurrence. Well, uh, uh, Gary's right. It's really, unfortunately, not rare enough. But we have we have uh, border cases, uh, drug cases, really almost any kind of case where you would end up looking at an offender's phone or computer. Sometimes they do end up revealing that we also have a child exploitation problem. So um, when they're many. exploiting these children, are they their children? Are they people that they know or just kids they have access? How does that work? So I think we we probably want to look at there's hands-on sort of in-person child exploitation as maybe, you know, certainly the base of the problem. And then there's online exploitation through images and videos. So a lot of times those individuals are using uh, material that's been created by other individuals and obviously with the hands-on or the original sex exploitation, 
those are almost always people that are known to and trusted by the children. And that's one of the complications of those cases is there are relationships. There was trust. And sometimes that person is a caregiver. Uh, So you can imagine why that compounds the difficulty for the victims, not just in processing and handling the trauma, but in making that report. So um, by by far, it's a person known and trusted. Um, Now, what's important to remember about those two categories, the person who is creating or child exploitation with or without the digital content and the person who's using that material online. So circulating those images of of victims. What's really important to know about that is that they are, uh, they're very much connected. There's a huge overlap between those two categories. It's common for people that are found with child sex abuse material on their devices to say, well, I would never touch a kid. Unfortunately, the research does not support that. So everything that's out there suggests that the bottom level of this overlap is about 55%. There's a lot of real good research on that. And I think Dr. Burke may have talked about that. I don't know if he covered it on the show, but there's substantial overlap between people who use CSAM and people who molest children. And it does make sense intuitively, right? Because the kind of pornography people choose does reflect their interest. And it is the kind of drive where... um, it typically doesn't stay just online or just on the device itself. So It escalates. Certainly. It escalates. And I think one of the things that he had said was there are so many people doing it and sharing it now because of the Internet that they're trying to make it a normal activity rather than, you know, I'm shocked, <laughs> you know, rather than something that would be a little perverted. <laughs> a lot perverted. And he also said that, you know, people like that, there's really no cure for them that, you know, they're going to be a pervert all their life, but they have to learn how to control it if that's possible. And some people it's not possible. Well, it's a management, it's a management um, yeah. problem more than, uh, you know, it's difficult for people to change what they're sexually attracted to, I'm sure. Um, Dr. Burke indicated that, but it, it's definitely a um, a lifelong process. And and what we do from the standpoint of law enforcement and prosecution is we seek long terms of supervision. So supervised release is a really robust process for sex offenders. After any prison sentence, there is very substantial supervision of those offenders for the community. Is there a program, if they're going into prison, is there a program in the prison that they have to go through, like maybe mandatory, to try to get them to, like you say, manage their urges? The Bureau of Prisons does have uh, a number of facilities. Some are like inpatient, almost full-time sex offender treatment, and some are... Um, not the inpatient sort, but there are several Bureau of Prisons facilities that have sex offender treatment programs. I wish they were mandatory. They are somewhat uh, voluntary, but the mandatory sex offender treatment comes in through probation and supervised release after they're released in the community. You'd think they'd want to do that while they were in prison to try to get a, or just leave them locked up. (laughs) 
Well, certainly re-entry is the word that the Bureau of Prisons uses on all of this these days, that we need to make sure that if someone is going to get out of society and, and go out of custody and re-enter their community, that they are as prepared as they can to do it. So in general, the Bureau of Prisons has programming um, during the time that people are in. Once they're released out, they often get out to a halfway house facility, which has additional treatment. And then once they are on supervised release, it's the job of that dedicated probation officer to oversee and to follow some of the conditions that Karen talked about. Um, They often have computer monitoring. They have place restrictions on where they can go. They have association restrictions on who they can be with. Um, And there are some abilities in the right case for the probation officer to do um, random searches of computers just to double check and make sure that, look, if the person's going to be out in society, we are helping them to be as on the straight and narrow as possible and not victimize anybody else. And they, they have to register as sex offenders. They do. Now, that depends on the state, and there's different levels depending on the crime that they committed. Um, But that's correct, that they would register and that that has additional reporting requirements for them. So if somebody is convicted of being a sex offender in one state, if they move to a state that doesn't require it, that they don't have to register, and that's okay? Um, Actually, there is a federal registration as well. So. we, we do have sex offender registration uh, requirements with federal convictions. Those go across the board, and there are prosecutions for those who, failure to, who fail to register as well. Okay. And there's, there's a, a law that we're not really going to talk about too much today called SORNA, which is the Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act, that handles what happens when someone moves. Because people are allowed to move. They can get permission to go elsewhere in the country. And the goal is to keep those additional safeguards with them as they move. Long time ago, this happened a long time ago. I can't remember where I was living, but I I received a postcard in the mail saying, oh, this sex offender is going to be moving into your neighborhood. I went, wait, what? (laughs) Do they still do that? I don't know if they do the postcards, but that notification that you're referring to is actually one of the pieces of supervised release registration and community notification requirements that so uh, they feel that more eyeballs that are on this person you know they're going to find out if they're doing something wrong maybe i think there is a community an advantage to the community knowing about it obviously sex offenders that are released have to live somewhere as a society we've got to figure out some way where they can be Um, but it is important to notify the neighbors as well yeah, I I can see that. I was a little stunned when I got that, though. I was like, "Oh my God!" Well, call I, the movers before we before we move off. Um, or before we move on, I did want to make one point because I didn't um, I didn't clarify something. But when we're talking about the two categories, there's the child hands-on sex offenders and the um, people who use the images. One thing that's I think important for people to know is that. Even if someone is just, I'm using little air quotes here, but just images, just using or just looking at images online, that is by far not a victimless crime. It's certainly in no way, um, you know, not illegal. It is is illegal. And, And the problem with circulating people's images, especially 
images of some of the worst moments of a child's life is that the internet is still in ink and um, it takes away there there's a lot of loss of control for victims of child exploitation and that's even more compounded when there's a digital record of it that is circulating in perpetuity online so the harm to those who whose abuse is recorded is really uh, an additional impact. There's more trauma for people who know that their images are out there and they live in fear of being recognized. They have just no control over who is looking at those at That's any wild. given time. So so it's it's not a victimless crime even if the person offends only on the computer. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. It, that poor kid is going to grow up and know that all this is out there someplace. And what do you do? How do you handle that? It's a lot of therapy, I imagine. I think well, that's, that's a whole, co- whole different topic. <laughs> yeah. It is, but it's why when we talk about prosecutions, we also want to talk about it's not just the time in custody, it's the services to the victims and when appropriate restitution to the victims to ensure that they can continue to get services throughout their lives. Does that happen when you have a case? Do Are there monetary consequences to the person who's committing these crimes? There are, and there can be fines um, which go to the General Crime Victims Fund to support victim services generally, and there can be restitution specific to victims, even to some of the victims in um, in cases that are, you know, where, where it's not a hands-on offense, but it was transmitting older images. Those victims can continue to get restitution. I'll tell you, I've looked now through a bunch of the cases we've done in the district. We don't always get restitution. It strikes me that we probably need to do a more vigorous job of working um, with the victims and at least trying to get fines in the right case. Some of this, of course, depends on whether or not the defendant is indigent or has the money to pay it. But I, I took a look at a recent case of Karen's where I think there was fifteen or $20,000 that, um, that was ordered uh, split between the crime victims fund and to the individual victims. There's been cases where there's a lot more, and again, there's been cases where um, victims have either declined or um, we've moved on. There's nothing, yeah. So, if you have a child and you don't know what's going on, the child maybe is being abused. What does a parent look for? What you know? How do you identify something like that? Well, that's, I think that's a, that's a, that's a very tough, uh, that's a tough place for parents to be because the nature of sex abuse generally is that it is secret. Um, there's a lot of barriers to, uh, revealing it. It happens, uh, typically just between two people. So the, I think probably the best thing we can have or the best advice we have for parents for identifying potential abuse and more importantly, even preventing abuse in the online context, especially is to encourage open dialogue. Parents a lot of times feel like they're behind the technology curve. And I think we are, I can say that uh, as a parent and as maybe not a, a spring chicken, but um, we do have to still do our best and it really it helps to just talk to your kids. So talking to your kids about what you're hearing. So a lot of parents find that something like today would be a perfect jumping off conversation. Hey, I heard about this. I heard about sextortion on this radio show or news. You know, I read an article. 
let me tell you about the story. What do you think about that? And it's a great place for a dialogue between parents and children. And I know that they don't always listen to parents. I, that's my experience. They're really good at saying no to us. We want to empower them to say no to other people as well. But um, we, we have to keep trying to educate them. And then there's, there's other things parents can do. Um, they can try to keep devices out of the bedroom at night. If, uh, if it's not too late to start that policy, that's a very, very important thing to try. Um, spot checking is difficult. We have our own lives and jobs, so it's pretty hard to stay on top of someone else's digital life all the time. But it's important to do that with our children because their brains are not the same as ours. So um, their their access through uh, Wi-Fi or, or um, you know service now gives them an opening to any random stranger. Anybody in the world, we never had this when, when we were growing up. Yeah, so no. we think we, we don't want to interfere with our child's privacy, for example. And you don't, you know, they deserve a certain amount of privacy. On the other hand, when we would take maybe that, that phone to bed and talk to our best friend before we ran out and hung up the phone, um, that's pretty different than giving somebody an opening to anybody yeah. coming into their bedroom. Yeah, I... I said a couple of weeks ago, I just think kids should have flip phones that aren't internet connected and keep them safe. I mean, what's wrong with that? I, I think we many parents have that inclination, just stay away from this. Unfortunately, I think digital, Peer the digital word, the world is here to stay. And so much socializing takes place now online. It's, a, it, I think it's an understandable tendency to want to take that from our children. I think um, sometimes we want to make sure that our children know that if they make a mistake or if they come to us with a problem online, they might want to know that we are not going to simply take away their phone and their ability to communicate with their friends. And not going to blow up at them and, you know, what did you do? Be accusatory. It's, it's very important, I think, for parents to remember um, the predators are not the, you know, the predators are at fault. The people who reach out to kids on gaming platforms who know better are, are the ones that we need to focus on, uh, focus the anger or the um, consequences on children make mistakes. Their brains are not, not developed. developed. They, they yeah. don't understand consequences. They are bathed in hormones. Um, it is it is important for us to try to cut them slack. And I, I know I struggle with my own bias about that. Sometimes you hear stories and you, you want to think, oh, stupid teenager. But that's sort of built into being a teenager sometimes yeah. making a mistake. And so That's how I think grow up. <laughs> remind ourselves because you can get mad at your kid for making a mistake, uh, but it's important to keep that communication open. Well, you know, talking about that and the person who they're talking to online, the grooming process is so sophisticated. I mean, I've seen adults get groomed, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so, you know, you're thinking here's a little kid they're going to, it's going to be very susceptible to them. And this isn't a situation where, you know, you want to see my puppy or do you want a piece of candy? This is a grooming process online and it's very effective. So, and it's a generation of, of kids who have just been used to being online. And so sharing information in that online setting and in that chat room setting, and they don't think anything of it. They don't think anything of it at all. Yeah. It's just, you know, here I am. The concept of privacy is very, very different today than when we were 
growing up and I think it's a reality we have to accept even if we don't like it um, but you know there are always things parents can do and and children because dis- digital citizenship is a reality we have our real lives as we see them and then there's this whole online world digital citizenship is a factor that we want to educate our kids about and ourselves you're right adults make mistakes too yeah very very serious stuff okay we're going to take a quick break we'll be back in a few This is Deputy Chuke with Pima County Search and Rescue. Save your phone's battery life so when you get lost, we may contact you. Wearing bright colors that can be seen from a distance helps the effort. This is a rescue, not a scavenger hunt. Hi, this is Sherry asking you to save the dates. On August 5th, Law Matters is hosting a free double feature movie presentation on topics that affect all youth in today's digital world. Bullying, sextortion, and how your children are being sex trafficked right out of your home. Every teacher, parent, and age-appropriate student should attend. After each movie, there will be a Q&A panel made up of law enforcement and prosecutors to answer your questions. Also, on September 9th, we'll host a not-free-but-reasonable symposium on sex crimes against children. Tune in to Law Matters every Saturday morning at 8, and updates will be posted on the lawmatters1030.org website as details develop. Daylight is fading, and the temperature is dropping. You are not only cold, hungry, and lost in a densely wooded area, you're injured. Time is of the essence. Sarsi is a highly trained team of dedicated volunteers who work closely with Pima County Search and Rescue to help people in critical situations just like this. To join an exclusive team of heroes, go to sarsi.org. That's S-A-R-C-I dot org. We need your knowledge, experience, and of course, your generous spirit. To report suspected human trafficking, please call the National Human Trafficking Resource Center at 1-888-373-7888 or text HELP or INFO to 233-733. To learn more about Homeland Security investigations and our efforts to combat human trafficking, please visit our website at www.ice.gov or check out the DHS Blue Campaign at www.dhs.gov slash blue campaign. For more information on the Southern Arizona Anti-Trafficking Unified Response Network, please visit us at www.saturn.org or find us on Facebook. Thanks for staying with us. Our guest today is Karen. She's a prosecutor, and we have Gary Rustano. Say it for me. Rustano. Rustano. I'm going to have to phonetically spell that next time. Okay, he's a U.S. attorney. Tell me, how do you get the cases that you get, that you prosecute? Because I, I know you can't do all of them, right? Yeah, and that's actually a good place to start. We we can't do all of them, and we don't have to do all of them. Um our state partners, the 15 county attorney's offices, have primary jurisdiction over most things that hurt children or over most people that hurt children. Where we federally can get involved is in the large amount of those cases where interstate um, transportation or something else interstate is involved. So it's when um, a defendant or a victim travels across state lines. It's when the child sexual abuse material is sent across state lines okay. through the internet or other forms of wire communication. Um, it's that that interstate nexus that gives us the jurisdiction. And as we've talked about it, in a digital world, that's a large range um, that we are able to prosecute as well. And so what we try to look for um, in those cases is to figure out with our agency partners um, who can best handle those cases. 
we could do more cases than we currently do if we had more resources to do the cases, and we look to try to do the cases that are going to have substantial impact federally. And so a lot of those cases are sextortion cases. We had um, one where there was someone from within Mexico who was engaging with children online, getting them to send unlawful images, and then upping the ante by getting them to do more threatening um, publication. We had a case where a defendant traveled from Arizona to the East Coast to engage in illicit sexual contact with a girl that he had groomed. I mention this case because of the tenacity of the victim and our prosecutors. We had to do that case twice at trial. Sometimes that happens. Jurors can't make a unanimous decision. And the victim was courageous and wanted to do it again, and we got a conviction the second time around. I think a third type of case that we sometimes see is is um, the vulnerability of a certain segment of people. We had a case that we worked jointly with Nevada a number of years ago where um, kids involved in skateboarding who really came from poor backgrounds were groomed by someone that was important in their life. And we need to look at the vulnerabilities there. Those are some examples of cases that resonate federally to me as a leader of the office and that people like Karen and others have worked on over the years. Let me turn it over to Karen to talk a little bit more about how we sort of make those decisions and where else we get the case tips from. Um, so th- there are several ways we get uh, cases. Sometimes it's parents picking up someone's phone and realizing what's going on. Sometimes it's it's an investigation, maybe white collar drug or otherwise that bleeds, you know, reveals that there's more to be looked at. Um, But one of the main, we have proactive investigations, there are tools law enforcement uses with file sharing, but one of the main ways that we uh, receive both federal and state um, law enforcement receives leads is through NECMEC. So NECMEC is the National Center for Missing, Missing and Exploited Children. We call it NECMEC for short. It's obviously an easier bite there. And they are the milk carton people. You know, they they were the they they lead the nation in um, helping locate and um, support families with missing children. But they also uh, are a, basically a clearinghouse or repository for cyber tips. We call them, and cyber tips come from all sorts of electronic service providers. Um, you know, responsible internet uh, providers take things down, uh, report illegal content, and then NECMEC uh, geolocates the IP address or the source of the problem and sends those leads out nationally and then they're followed up on. So um, they're an incredible resource. They also have a great deal of resources for parents and kids if you go to missingkids.org or NECMEC.org. One particular kind of case that we have uh, seen a priority on federally and uh, it's it's particularly egregious now is sextortion and sextortion you know it started it became more common in 2014 and Gary mentioned some of those cases we also had just as an example of how kind of pernicious this can be there was a man in Utah who um, I, who went on pro anorexia websites and it, which, yes, it, it's awful to hear that those even exist, but he volunteered to be a coach for these struggling, vulnerable teenage girls. He, was, he had a beautiful family, you know, married with children, 
but there was this dark side and it was extremely dark um he extorted some pictures from them he was these sextortion cases tend to be real power and control based it seems to be a challenge for these offenders and um so he he victimized a a local teen who was strong enough to report it and of course we always find other victims there this is a project for these individuals who sometimes have as many as a thousand victims so you can imagine that's one of the places i think we see federal benefits because we can work with our counterparts in other districts to identify other victims and to create a prosecution that addresses everyone's harm or to the best of our ability and that's hard when there's that many victims so the sextortion thing has really kind of evolved and the trends now which are more troubling is that it's gone from and it, and there are still of course all types where there's a grooming relationship that might seem romantic to the child um, where it's designed to get additional sex acts maybe different videos or to encourage a child to offend against a, a sibling or another child we've had cases like that as well um, but now we're seeing more cases where the offenders are targeting boys and they're targeting and they're seeking money. And the other trend that we're finding with these cases is that there is a, uh, it's a faster course. So whereas some of them may take a week or a month or days of communication, these are high pressure, essentially scams. So there are people who are pretending to be usually a same age or similar age, opposite sex. So these are, and they're coming a lot out of Nigeria, we're finding, which makes enforcement difficult, but, but there is an effort to work on this. Um, they pretend to be a girl. They use videos that appear to be a same age, attractive female, and they engage in an opportunity after grooming, after being interested in making friends with, asking questions, bonding with these teen boys. And 10 to 17 is, is a common victim age. 10 years old. Yes. So where they're online and where they're gaming and every platform, but including games. Uh, so when you have a young child gaming, he's at risk as well. Um, the... The problem that we've seen that led to uh, even at the end of last year uh, an FBI and DOJ um, press release about this to really raise awareness. The problem that we're seeing with this is that the pressure and the fear that these offenders are instilling in our children is leading to an increased rate of suicide. There mm -hmm. are 12 suicides in, in a one-year period that are known. Those are only the ones that are known about in terms of the cause that came as a direct result of these very, very skilled uh, operators threatening to expose these videos, which would be embarrassing, but certainly shouldn't be life-ending. But in the teenage brain, where someone is saying, I know all your contacts, I have all your contacts, I'm going to put this out there, I'm going to show your parents, I know all your data, I will ruin your life. That's very real and terrifying to these children who are embarrassed and isolated and afraid to reveal what they've done, afraid of parental consequences, afraid of their reputation. So it's terrifying, I think, um, to parents to realize that this is out there, but there's really been an increase in this particular form of sextortion. And we want people to know about it. We want teenagers to know 
that this is happening so they can be uh, on guard. And we want parents to know about it so they can talk to their children about it and try to protect against it. Yeah, kids need to know that, you know, they don't have to do whatever somebody, mystery person online, tells them or orders them or asks them to do. They can just turn off the computer and walk away. And before you do something, talk to your parents. Hey, this person wants me to do whatever. What do I do? Ask your parents what to do. Get some help. And really, if it's not, if it's a child that has made a mistake because they think they were communicating with, say, you know, a 16-year-old girl in the next county, and then they realize it wasn't that. If they're not comfortable talking to a parent, I would say any trusted adult. There's also people at NECMEC and other internet safety organizations. They're there to talk to kids, too. I would tell a child, talk to any trusted adult. Get help. If you need to, go, go with a friend. But... I think the main point is to to say something, and I know that's that takes a lot of bravery to do that, but it it helps protect others as well. Exactly, you're not alone. You're absolutely not alone. This has become somewhat of a pandemic worldwide, and needs to be stopped. When somebody does decide that they're going to report it, who do they call? Do they call your office? Do they call law enforcement? Do they call Jennifer? <laughs> they typically don't call our office, and if they do call our office, we refer them to a law enforcement agency that has the the expertise to take in the information. They can refer it to local law enforcement. They can refer it to federal law enforcement directly to NCMEC. What else am I missing? NCMEC was my uh, FBI, NCMEC, really any, any, any all law, law enforcement. enforcement. They're all receiving these kinds of complaints. Every it, local law enforcement and federal law enforcement agency has re- has received sextortion complaints now. And don't think that nothing's going to happen when you report it. They will work with you, and they're trained to do this. This isn't something that, you know, you're going to call and they're going to go, oh, I don't know, you better call somebody else. <laughs> they're trained to help you, and you want that help. You want to be able to make these bad actors pay for be accountable for what they're doing because trust me you're not the only one out there being victimized by them that's right and there the accountability also lies with some of these social media platforms that host the the conversations that are taking place and i don't mean to suggest that every social media company has an obligation to get out there and 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 rummage through all of their users material but when they encounter something they need to report it to NCMEC, and that's by statute. And a decent, reasonable, responsible social media company is going to have a program to try to weed out exploitation that is abusing its own platform. Uh, and we really do find that when it comes to protecting children, a, a lot of the social media companies, a lot of these platforms, most of them really do um, do, do a good job in trying to protect children. You would think they'd have some type of algorithm that would say these are key words that you're looking for and you know just highlight that so that they can check these these um like suicide and you know sex whatever you know (laughs) keywords that you know would trigger somebody in that 
business to look at it and say if it's appropriate or not. Responsible uh, remote computing services and electronic computing services, which is the generic name for these, would have those. And NICMIC has model programs that that people can, um, that these entities can find as well. Oh, cool. uh, You know, even better, there's a uh, more recent uh, program through NECMEC called Take It Down. So even though I say the internet is, it is in ink and it, and it is, and there's a tremendous amount of content out of there uh, or out there, the Take It Down by NECMEC is, an, is a way that people can, NECMEC will help children take down content. So if you catch it early, and cases like I'm talking about sextortion cases or other CSAM cases, you can have them seek the assistance of other platforms to take your images down. This is for underage minors. That's and awesome. It is awesome. And they have a network now where they will work with other platforms to remove content that has been posted. So that's that's a, a wonderful development. So hope is not lost as far as, you know, if you've got a child, talk to them and talk to them about the gory stuff that's happening because you want them to be aware before it happens and explain to them what grooming is about. Explain what grooming is so people understand what we're talking about. Yep, absolutely. And this is also... Um, it's the balance on privacy, right? I say that the social media companies, the computing services tend to protect children. Um, they're, they're a little more cautious on privacy in reporting other crimes. But if we're balancing out privacy, we need to err on the side of protecting children. Right. And the fact that I didn't know about that Take It Down program, but after somebody has been groomed and they've done something, there's still hope that we can get it off the Internet. There is hope. Um, grooming is something that we use as a term to describe the process by which people will befriend, um, exploit, get to know, and exploit the vulnerabilities of our kids that I'm are your friend, online. You can tell me anything. And we have to remember too: at certain ages, teens are almost allergic to their parents, and so there's this opening for people, and and they're also struggling with you know who they are, who they're going to be, are they attractive, and so these these people know exactly how to do it. You are beautiful. I really want to be your friend. I know your parents don't understand you, but I do. Uh, and you know whether they're pretending to be uh, some a same age, maybe a potential romantic partner um, or or an adult, there is this vulnerability that they really know how to exploit. And so grooming happens with, it, it starts small with small talk and then it becomes personal. Then they start talking about sex. One thing parents and kids need to know to be a, alert for is moving to a different platform. A lot of times someone who's grooming will try to remove the child. Say they start on Facebook or Instagram. They may say, let's switch to, and they'll switch to a platform that is uh, safer for them in terms of getting caught. So if they want to move your child or or tell your children, if somebody wants to move off your Discord gaming or wherever they meet this person to a different platform, be suspicious about that. Uh, That's usually a red flag. Would they have to download a different platform on their phone or on their computer in order to do that? Often they do, and the, you, you can bet these offenders will walk your child through it in no time. Simple. Wow. So what type of platforms are we talking about? Do you have names? 
Well, they'll choose. I mean, there are platforms that many people use for completely legitimate reasons, but they're encrypted. So these offenders would like to move to those encrypted platforms. That could okay. be WhatsApp, Signal. There, there are plenty of them, and, and Whisper and Snapchat, because the children might think that um, their images are going to disappear immediately. But, of course, the offenders are recording these things secretly anyway. So Snapchat is not a safe thing to do. Well, Snapchat is a very common thing for children to use with other children, but it's like every other platform, it can be exploited. So alert, alert, alert. (laughs) So have we had any successful cases on, you know, putting these people in prison and for how long? What, What is a typical, you know, prison time for somebody who does this? Yeah, so the the three cases that I mentioned earlier, the the sextortion from Mexico, the travel to the East Coast, and the um, skateboarders up in the um, uh, northern part of Arizona, all of those were sentences um, in excess of 30 years. So this is a long time. Now, you got to think, though, 30 years is not likely to be the end of their lives. Um, They are likely to come out of custody at some point, and that's where that supervision that we've talked about is really important. And as I looked at some of the judgment and conviction orders in those cases, um, they very much have stringent conditions upon release uh, to ensure, you know, compliance and to ensure safety for the community. Karen's done a number of these cases over the years as well. Any additional cases you want to highlight? Well, for example, the the pro-anorexia coach, that sextortion case, and really most of the sextortion, he he received, I think, 20 years on our cases um, and lifetime supervision, which is also key. But the the multi-victim cases routinely do result in sentences 20, 30 years. Um, And certainly repeat offenders, um, there are really substantial provisions in our uh, sentencing guidelines and in our statutes that enable us to um, get sometimes lifetime or effective lifetime sentences. Is it a certain amount of years per incident? Or how does that work? I would say no. The state system is is like that, that a particular incident equals a certain number of years, and that's why one sees, um, you know, some stacked sentences, maybe 60, 70, 80 years on the state system. In the federal system, I think it's, there's some mandatory minimums that are based on the conduct, but it's looking at the overall conduct of the defendant in front of the court. Have they done this before, the number of victims um, and the like, and coming up with a holistic um, sense of what the right sentence should be. That's what our, that's what our federal judges typically do. Okay. So really, it's up to the judge. Very much so. There are some mandatory minimum sentences that drive it. But in these sentences that I was um, describing that were 30 years and more, not all of that was the mandatory. That was the court exercising the discretion that comes with the judge's expertise over the years. Very cool. Okay, I get it. So is there any good news that we can tell people about? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think that's a good a good way to to close on a topic that's so hard. Um, I think the good news, besides the fact, uh, as I mentioned, that you know, the internet leaves a trail and child sex abuse material images enable us to identify people that wouldn't have other otherwise been identified, um, is that there are teams of law enforcement everywhere, you know, state, local, tribal, and federal. And worldwide, people are working on this all the time. 
Um, it is it, it, it's something everybody can get together on, and um, and we're on it. A lot of people are on it. It's extremely satisfying, rewarding work that helps protect those of us who do the work, and um, it, it, you know it's it makes a difference. I would add as well. One of the other things we see for hope is that there are more advocates willing to do this work. You know, we have Karen that's done this for much of her career and a couple of seasoned AUSAs in Phoenix as well. But we've got three or four newer prosecutors that really want to do this work. And we see some newer and younger agents that want to do it. We need another generation of heroes in order to protect the children. Yeah, we really do. So tell me something. How did you get your job? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm a career prosecutor for the most part, and so got my job originally by applying the same way most people do to get into the office. Um, In the fall of 2020, after the election, I started the process of seeking the presidential nomination for the job, and I wound up being successful, I I think because I am a career prosecutor, and I I know how the Department of Justice works, and I know how important it is for us to work with all our local and state partners here in Arizona, and I've just been thrilled to have it ever since. And I think that's something people need to understand, too. Everybody works together. We do very well in Arizona. You share a lot of information, too, Mm -hmm. so, you know, what might be reported down in maybe Sierra Vista people in Phoenix are probably going to hear about it because of this information sharing. So we really do have a network. We, we do talk to each other and, and uh, work together and it's very inspiring. Yeah. Because you can have a bad actor in one place and decides go to a different place. Well, we know you're a bad actor because we know what you did down there. So you're on our radar. I would say that's another good part about the internet. It's, it's really kind of linked communities and states it's linked us all so we can be aware of of crimes that are crossing those borders. So what are some of the agencies? We've got like a minute. What are some of the agencies where people can go get help as far as, you know, after the fact, you're pretty traumatized. Your child's traumatized. As a parent, I would be traumatized. Where can they go for help? What agencies are available to them? To report a crime, any local law enforcement, FBI, TPD, OVPD, wherever you are, wherever your uh, your victim sits. And they'll have the information so that if you need like to counseling or therapy or, you know, situations where, hey, I, I just need to talk to somebody. Most of those people will have a, a list of referrals or places people can go if it's if it's about seeking services. And we have a really robust program in our office and across the nation in every office of victim witness advocates for okay. these cases. They work with crime victims and they also provide resources and information about where to seek them. Very cool. So there's hope for everybody. We just need to start reporting recognize what you're looking at when you see it and get the help you need and i want to thank everybody for coming on the show it's been awesome thank you for driving down and until next week shop local and stay safe
Hi, this is Sherry asking you to save the dates. On August 5th, Law Matters is hosting a free double feature movie presentation on topics that affect all youth in today's digital world. Bullying, sextortion, and how your children are being sex trafficked right out of your home. Every teacher, parent, and age-appropriate student should attend. After each movie, there will be a Q&A panel made up of law enforcement and prosecutors to answer your questions. Also on September 9th, we'll host a not-free-but-reasonable symposium on sex crimes against children. Tune in to Law Matters every Saturday morning at 8, and updates will be posted on the lawmatters1030.org website as details develop.